Um, it's, real, it's a real joy just to be able to contribute. Um, I'm here to disprove the theory that men can't multitask. So I've been playing the, uh, the guitar and now we're going to preach as well. So let's see how we get on. Uh, and was really impressed with the, uh, the answers that the kids were giving to your questions. Like, I mean, whoever's teaching those guys in Sunday school needs a pay rise because these are pretty spiritual answers. Um, so anyway, let's get going. Um, if you have a Bible and you have it still open to John or to Luke 10, sorry, um, let's just keep that open and we'll work our way through it. Um, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to just pray just one more time, just ask for the Lord's help. Father, thank you for just the opportunity to come around your word. Um, we really need your help now. Lord, we really want to understand this and discover what you're saying through it. So come by your spirit in your power enlighten us um, with what this means. Speak to us, I pray, in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as Langs has already um, alluded, today we're going to look at probably the most famous and well-loved parable that Jesus has ever told. It's the parable of the Good Samaritan. I was talking to someone recently who told me that this is our Queen's favorite story in the Bible. I don't know how they know that, and if there's any royal correspondence in the room, you could enlighten us. But it, it wouldn't be a surprise if it was her favorite parable. You know, there are many parts of the Bible that, at first glance, people have some difficulty with grasping, maybe accepting, maybe we're even going to discover some parables in future weeks that, at first glance, we're like, what is going on there? I don't know if I like that. We're going to need to explain that. But this is not one of those parables. This is a parable that we tend to like. And it's had a huge influence on us down through the centuries. Everything um, from Rembrandt paintings, um, Van Gogh paintings, it's been a huge influence in uh, music and in the creative arts. Um, it's even had a huge influence in the language that we use in our Western worlds, the terms that we use. We know if someone is called a good Samaritan, what that refers to. We know that that's a good thing, that's a compliment. We have good Samaritan acts that run through our parliaments. We like to name hospitals and charities after the term Samaritan. We're, we're used to this. This is a story that we like, and it's a story that is in many ways a paragon of Christian ethics. Politicians and social justice campaigners often refer to this story in advocating for inclusion, love for others, social harmony, all the sorts of things that we value in our culture today. In fact, Martin Luther King when he was um, giving his famous speech, I've been to the mountaintop, he delivered a call for civil rights from this very parable on the night before he was assassinated. It's a story that we like to identify with. It's a story that inspires us. It's a story that we feel everyone could benefit from and could learn some lessons from. And so to borrow the words of our title, everyone loves this good story. Everyone, it would seem, except the man for whom it was originally intended. The irony of this parable is that the one person for whom Jesus originally intended it is the one person who struggled to accept it. He didn't think this was a good story. 
And the reason why is that the purpose behind this parable was to expose in this man the inadequacy of his own heart and his own confidence in how he could achieve eternal life. Now, no one likes to have their own inadequacies exposed. No one likes to be confronted with their own weaknesses um, or their own inadequacies in terms of their thinking or their character, but it can be life-changing to be exposed to those sorts of things. That's why God invented marriage. Now, my birthday is coming up in 10 days' time, so if you would like to be Good Samaritans and buy me some gifts, I think that would be a good application of this sermon. But I heard a story recently about a husband who went into John Lewis to buy a gift for his wife for her birthday, and very courageously, he went up to one of those um, scary cosmetic counters, you know, that they make you run the gauntlet through when you walk through uh, John Lewis or some other department store, and he spoke to the lady at the counter who often wears everything that they sell at those particular counters. But um, he said to her, you know, I'd like to buy a gift for my wife's birthday. And the sales assistant replied and said, absolutely, sir. We have this beautiful new bottle of our high-range perfume available, and she'll love it. It's only 70 pounds. And the man replied, well, thank you, but I'm actually looking for something a little bit cheaper. Do you have anything else? And the sales assistant said, well, absolutely, sir. We have this lovely new chunky bracelet for only 30 pounds. That's great, the husband said, but you know, I'm still looking for something just, just a little bit cheaper, if you, if you don't mind. There's our new collection of foundation for only 15 pounds. She'll love this, said the sales assistant. Yeah, again, said, said the man, even that's a bit pricey. Do you have anything still cheaper? Our bottle of nail polish is only 10 pounds. Look, said the husband, I, I, I need to be really clear with you. I'm not sure this is getting through. I am looking for something really, really cheap. To which the sales assistant said, I have just the thing. And she lifted up the mirror on the counter and pointed it to the man. <laughs> it's never easy to realize the inadequacies of your own character and thinking, but it can be life-changing. And that's exactly what happens in this parable. This is a story about Jesus holding up a mirror to this man's theology and confidence in how a person gets to heaven, and he exposes the inadequacy of this man's thinking in that area. And so if we're really going to understand this parable, we need to take seriously the context in which Jesus used it and why it is so significant for this particular context because parables don't emerge from anywhere they play a purpose in a wider discussion and so Luke very deliberately tells us the context where this parable came from and he starts in verse 25 and he says on one occasion an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus teacher he asked what must I do to inherit eternal life now at this stage in history in the Middle East rabbis often sat to teach. And if you wanted to um, ask a question of a rabbi, you would stand. You would literally stand up and it would be acknowledged as a sign of respect and you would be able to articulate your question. And so on this occasion, Luke says, Jesus was sitting teaching and an expert in the law stands to engage him in a session of Q&A. They ask him a question. And when Luke says that a lawyer or an expert in the law stood to do this, he's not talking about our, our understanding of law. He's not talking about some attorney general or some senior judge. When he says an expert in the law here, he's talking about the religious law of the Old Testament. He's talking about the law that God gave his people Israel hundreds of years before this. 
So in other words, this man was a leading theologian and scholar of his day. He was an expert in the Jewish law. It's kind of the equivalent today of like the Regis Professor of Theology at the University of Oxford. Now here's the question. Why might it be significant that Jesus tells this parable to an expert in the law? What is it about this man's relationship to the law that makes this particular parable so appropriate for him in Jesus' eyes? Something to think about. So Jesus stands to ask this, this man stands to ask Jesus a question, but Luke also tells him his motive. He says in verse 25, he stood up to test Jesus. And I spend a lot of my time engaging with people's big questions about God. And one of the things that I've discovered is that people ask questions for different reasons. Not all questions are created equally. Some people ask questions simply out of a genuine search for information. Other people ask questions, even the exact same question that somebody else might ask. Some people ask questions not because they want to know something, but because they want to expose what you know or what you don't know. Because that's what questions do. They expose what you know. But the very same question can also expose what you don't know if you don't know the right answer. Same question that can make you look very, very smart can also be a question that makes you look very, very stupid. I have a great story on this. I don't have time to tell you it all. It involves density. It involves me at open day in school when I was 13 years of age. And it involves somebody asking a really good question that exposed, these guys are laughing because they've heard the story before. We can talk about it over coffee. Um, but it's, it really, really exposed me. It was a very simple question when I was manning a physics experiment at open day in school. But it completely <coughs> disarmed me. Um, and if you want to know how to get out of a tricky situation, then I can help you do that because that's what I did. But questions have the ability to do it. They expose what you know or what you don't know. And that appears to be the motive for our professor in asking this question. Jesus might be able to impress some peasant Galilean fishermen with what he says about God. But now he's in a different league. Now he's going to be asked some questions by an expert about, what his, about where his trust in God is going and what it actually means for people. And it's, he thinks it's going to expose Jesus' views for how primitive they actually are. And many a theology professor has done that. And yet, despite this questionable motive, he asks a brilliant question. He says in verse 25, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Now, this is a brilliant question. This is the biggest question that anyone can ask. It's the question of human inquiry. Is there more to life than this? Is death really the end or is there something more? If God exists and heaven is real, how do I get there? And all the religions of the world are, have a view on this. So this guy asked, well, what's Jesus' view? Let's, let's find out what he thinks about the most basic and fundamental question of all. And amazingly, Jesus takes a note out of the politician's book. He doesn't answer the question. In fact, his reply is to ask this man's one question with two questions of his own. Now, what's he doing there? Well, he's wanting to understand where this man is coming from. He's asking this man to reveal what his presuppositions are, because that's what questions do. And so he asks this man, well, what do you think? You're an expert in the law. Have you ever read the law? 
what do you think it means? And that can be a very dangerous thing to ask. It can be a very dangerous thing to ask an academic scholar what their perspective is on their field of expertise. Because here's what you do. Ben's doing a, a, a default at the minute. It can be a very difficult thing because what you actually do is you give academics the impression that they do not often get. And that is the impression that normal people are interested in the field of research that they're doing, which doesn't often happen. But miraculously, sorry Ben, we're all interested in what you're doing. <laughs> miraculously though, this professor manages to do something that eludes most scholars, and that is give a concise answer. He says in verse 27, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your, mind, with all your strength, with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. Now that is a brilliant answer. It's the right answer. It's the answer that Jesus gave when he was asked a similar question in Mark chapter 12. If you want to understand and capture the heart of all the laws and all the commandments of the Old Testament, here it is. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength and all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. He's nailed it. He's absolutely got it. And then Jesus replies, absolutely correct. Now do this, and you'll live. Jesus says to him, you've got the theory right. But if you really want to have eternal life, it's going to mean that you do it. It's going to mean that you practice this stuff perfectly, and that changes the game. Because it's really nice when all we have to do is understand this stuff or hear a talk about it on a Sunday. It's a little bit different when you have to put it into practice. Love God with everything. Put Him first in everything. Let Him be my worldview. Love my neighbor. Sometimes neighbors can be very difficult to love. And so the crucial question is this. If finding eternal life is not simply about just being an expert in all this field. It's not even identifying the summary of the law that this man has done. That's all good. But if you really want eternal life, if you really want to get to heaven and know God, it means that you're going to have to do it. You're going to have to put this into practice. And the question becomes, is that possible? If this is the way to eternal life, is it actually possible? Because the standard seems a little high. Jesus is communicating to this expert in the law. Look, it's fine to understand God's law and go through all this. But the kind of people that God is looking for is not just those who understand the law. It's the sort of people who do it perfectly. They're the ones who have eternal life. And here's the thing. The law can't give you that. See, in order to understand what Jesus is saying here, we need to understand the nature of law. Any law, not just God's law, but any law. So let's forget God's law for a moment, and let's think about what laws actually do. I think laws do two things. Number one, I think the law reveals, so we have two number ones. The law, the law reveals um, what the lawmaker's vision is. And number two, Laws force you to act in accordance with that vision 
whether you want to or not. Now, let me explain this a little bit. For example, let's take the speed limit laws around Bicester. So say you're driving down one of the roads in Bicester and you see a big sign on the road with a 50 on it, okay? If this is convicting you right now, it's the Holy Spirit, it's not me, okay? What, what does that show you? It shows you that the speed limit is 50 miles an hour, but it also shows you something else. It shows you somebody has made that law and their vision for this road is that you drive 50 miles an hour or below on it. In other words, someone's gone out and they've done the research, lawmakers have gone out and they've done research and they said, life will go better for you and for everyone else if on this particular road you stick to 50 miles an hour. So it reveals to you the lawmaker's vision for this particular um, aspect of life. But it also does something else. It forces you to drive at 50 miles per hour or below whether you want to or not, particularly if there's a big yellow camera somewhere along the road. Laws force you to behave according to the lawmaker's vision. But here's the thing. The law cannot make you want to live according to that vision. Because let's just say the council passed a bill that took away all the speed limits from Bicester. Sounds great, doesn't it? So there are no speed cameras, no speed limits anywhere in Bicester. What would be the thing in that kind of context that would determine how fast you drive on the roads of Bicester? Your heart. How you want to drive on the roads of Bicester. See, laws can force you to behave a certain way, but they cannot make you want to, f to drive a certain way. In fact, many of the laws that are put into our society are given because you can't be trusted with your own heart on a road. You can't be trusted with your own heart and two tons of metal that drives 50 miles an hour. So we have to give you laws in order to curb your enthusiasm. That's what laws do. They force you to behave a certain way, but they can't make you want to. That happens when your heart is changed. That moment, the moment that a law is taken away or not there, immediately all of us default to where our heart's at. What you really want. And that's why doing the law is so difficult because even though you have the law to tell you what you want to do, we still find ourselves wanting to do the alternative. Imagine you're driving on one of the back roads to Bicester. You're trying to get home. It's late at night. No one's around. There's no cameras. You know the road is 50. Do you drive at 50? Some of us struggle too. Because in that moment, even though we have the law and we know what it is, in that moment we have an opportunity. No one's around to give us a ticket. No one's around to hold us accountable. The one thing that matters at that time is what do we want? Where's our heart? Is the law written on our heart or is it just written on the sign? And when the sign's not there to be enforced, we do what we want. That's the way laws work. Now what about God's law? What about loving your neighbor. That can be harder than keeping the speed limits, right? Because speed limits have never done anything to us. People have. And so it can be extremely difficult, especially when a person is difficult to love. What about when loving them costs us? And even though God has told us what to do and the road signs are there, it can be extremely difficult. 
Because the law can force you how to behave, but it can't make you want to behave. And given the opportunity, you'll do what your heart wants. And that's what Jesus is saying. The point of Jesus in saying, go and do likewise, is for this man to realize you can't do it. You can't live up to this standard. Because if all the law is summed up in love, love God, love others, the law can't make you love. It can make you do loving things, but it can't make you love. That's a condition of the heart. And this man realizes it because he goes on in verse 29 and says, but he wanted to justify himself. So he asked Jesus, well, who is my neighbor? Now, you only try to justify yourself when you feel you're being undermined. So this guy knows that whatever Jesus said to him up to now, it's undermining how he thinks he's going to get eternal life. You only do that, you only try to justify yourself when you feel like you're being undermined. For example, if I was to say to my wife, Amy, darling, I really feel we need to consider buying a Ford Ranger pickup truck. I mean, come on, is that not just the most beautiful thing on four wheels you've ever seen? And Amy will say to me, are you crazy? Why on earth would we need a pickup truck? We live in Bister, not Montana. Do you know how much those things cost on fuel and insurance? We don't have money to buy this. And at that point, I feel like my theory for the importance of buying this pickup truck is being undermined, and therefore I need to justify. And so I will go to her and will say, yeah, but it's a long-term investment. I mean, think about the space we would have when we travel. You know, we could, we could give people lifts. We could help people move. You know, the Bible talks a lot about hospitality and caring for others. I think this would be good. You know, I think this would help us to serve the Lord in this particular way. And I've prayed about it. I could make a biblical case for justifying buying a Ford Ranger. But it would largely be about just justifying what I want. And that's what this guy is doing. He realizes that what Jesus told him to do seriously undermines how he thinks eternal life can be achieved. And so he tries to justify his position by a second brilliant question. He says, who is my neighbor? He's still holding on to the fact that he believes that it is actually possible to do love your neighbor. And maybe deep down he's thinking, well, obviously it's not possible to do that for everyone. But if we define neighbor in the right way, then it might be possible. I mean, neighbor is an ambiguous term. But what if by neighbor Jesus doesn't mean, or Jesus means close family and friends and people that it's easy to love anyway? Then I think I could qualify for this eternal life thing. I think I could do it. You can justify anything in order to appropriate your behavior. And in response to this question, Jesus tells him this parable of the Good Samaritan. And it's a story that doesn't deal with identifying who this neighbor is. It's not about answering this man's question. It's about way more. It's a story that deals with what it actually means to be a neighbor and to love others as yourself. Jesus says in verse 30, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he was attacked by robbers and they stripped him of his clothes and they beat him and went away, leaving him half dead. Now, everyone listening to this story um, when it was first given by Jesus, would have known about this road from Jerusalem to Jericho. It was infamous. It was 17 miles of 3,000 feet of descent, twisting roads of blind bends, flanked by mounds and caves on every side. It was the perfect context for an ambush. 
And this man finds himself in the wrong place at the wrong time and he's confronted by these robbers and they beat him senseless and leave him to bleed out on the road. And suddenly, this man is completely vulnerable. He's alone. He's dying. He cannot do anything to save himself. He's purely at the mercy of other people. And his only hope is that someone comes along before it's too late. And amazingly, somebody does come along. Two people, in fact. Jesus goes on in verse 31 and 32 and says, A priest happened to be going down the same road. And when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. And then a Levite too, when he came to the place and he saw him, he passed by on the other side. Now, why is it significant that Jesus identifies these two as a priest and a Levite? Because it is, there's no question that Jesus identified these men very, very deliberately. This is very intentional. Why is this significant for this man that these men are a priest and a Levite? Well, this is all in the context of discussion about gaining eternal life through our own effort in keeping the law, right? And priests and Levites were the leading examples at this time of practitioners of the law, of people who did the law. They would have been exemplars of Jewish piety and law keeping. They would have been up at the temple having served and done all the rituals and kept up all the practices that the law prescribed. And so if anyone could be described as loving God and loving others, it was the priest and it was the Levite. They were the pastors. And yet now they're not in the temple. And they're alone. And suddenly they discover this man and it's just them and him and the opportunity. We're back on the road at the back of Bister, and no one's around. And the only thing that will matter when there's no one to hold you accountable or no one to force you to keep the law is, what will my heart do, even if I've been worshiping up in Jerusalem for two whole weeks beforehand? The issue now gets to the heart. And Jesus' point is this. That as much as these men are examples of people who do the law and do its rituals, when it comes to the crunch, when it comes to the test of the heart, they do not have the capacity to do what God would do. They do not have the capacity to love their neighbor as themselves. They choose themselves over their neighbor. They don't have the ability because it's not written on their heart. And then Jesus doesn't stop there. He continues in verse 35, 33. To 33, sorry, to 35. And he says, But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came to where the man was. And when he saw him, he had compassion for him, and he went to him, and he bandaged his wounds, pouring in oil and wine. And then he put the man on his own donkey and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave it to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra spend you may have. Now, let's be really clear about the significance of what Jesus has just said, because we often miss it. We're used to the fact that the hero of this story is a good Samaritan. But for this expert in the law and any other first century Jew who was listening to this, it would have been nothing short of, an ast of astounding, absolutely mind-blowing, that the hero of this story is a Samaritan. There was no such thing as a good Samaritan to a Jew of the first century. The relationship between Jews and Samaritans had been toxic to this time. They hated each other. They were enemies. They refused even to host Jesus in Luke chapter 9 because he was going to Jerusalem, and they didn't worship in Jerusalem. 
The prejudice and the animosity between these two communities towards each other was extensive and ran very, very deep. And if there was one group of people that Jews would have considered to be the antithesis of people who did the law and people who would inherit eternal life, it was the Samaritans. It would have been the cultural equivalent of me saying, and then a Nazi came down the road, or then a member of ISIS came down the road, and he's the hero of our story. And yet this Samaritan finds himself in exactly the same scenario exactly the same opportunity and the priest and the levite and even though he doesn't practice the law and the rituals in the same way they does he captures the spirit of the law and does what god would do why because verse 33 when he saw him he had compassion and what is compassion compassion is a condition of the heart you cannot legislate compassion into people. You can make them do compassionate acts, but you cannot make them compassionate at the heart level simply by laws. That's what distinguishes this man from the priest and the Levite. He has a different heart, God's heart, and it comes to the fore instinctively when he finds himself in a situation where the only thing that matters is the condition of his heart. And because it's coming out of his heart, look how extravagant his love is. He stops to care. He gets blood and mess and all sorts of stuff all over himself to, to help this guy. He tears his own clothes to provide bandages. He wastes his good oil and expensive wine in order to cleanse and soothe this man. He puts him on his own donkey so that he has to walk the rest of the way. He takes him to an inn. He ensures his safety and he guarantees this man's recovery by paying the full amount and taking it upon himself. This is miles beyond any of the social care that the law prescribed. This is way beyond the law. And how is he able to do it? Here's why. Because when love and compassion are truly a condition of your heart, there is no boundary to how far it goes. You don't ask who is my neighbor so that I can decide whether to love them or not. You don't ask how far do I go. It's not a chore. When you're radically committed to the good of others, you can be radically committed even if it costs you because it's pouring out of your heart. And Jesus says to him, that's what it means. That's what it means to love your neighbor. And so he finishes, and I'll finish with the last two verses. He asks this man, he finishes with a question of his own. He says, which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? Notice what Jesus has done with the original question. He's turned it from who is my neighbor to what does it mean to be a neighbor? From who is my neighbor when the onus is on other people to qualify to asking the question, do I qualify to be able to love at this kind of level if that's what it means to have eternal life? He didn't say which of these three did neighborly things. The answer would still be the same, but his question was, which of these three men proved to be a neighbor? Because the issue is a question of being, not just behavior. And it's a no-brainer what the answer is. The guy says, 
the one who had mercy. Cannot even bring himself to say Samaritan. He just says the one who had mercy. But he's right, you know, because mercy is a condition of the heart. It's not a behavior. It leads to behavior. And so Jesus says, go and do likewise. If you really want to achieve eternal life, this is what it's going to require. Love at this kind of level. And what this man should realize is you can't love at this level. It's impossible as a human being to love at this particular level. Here's what Christopher Hitchens, one of the New Atheist writes. He says, Jesus' order to love thy neighbor is mild and yet stern, a reminder of one's duty to others. But the order to love thy neighbor as thyself is too extreme, too strenuous to be obeyed, as is the hard to interpret instructions to love others as I have loved you. Humans are not so constituted as to care for others as much as themselves. The thing simply cannot be done, as any intelligent creator would well understand from studying his own design. Urging humans to be superhumans is the urging of terrible self-abasement um, at their repeated and inevitable failure to keep the rules. Do you know what? He's exactly right. And that's Jesus' point. And so the only hope, the only hope is if it's possible to become someone different. If it's possible to be changed at the deepest level of where our hearts are so that we're given the capacity to love like this. And that's a category that Hitchens doesn't account for. But it is what Jesus' point is. What hope is there for us if this is what it means to have eternal life and we can't do it? Well, the answer is this. It takes us right back to the contradiction in this man's question in verse 25. <coughs> he says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? But if the eternal life is something that you inherit, then it's not something that you do in order to get. Inheritance is not something that you do in order to earn. It's something that you get because of who you are. And so the question is about being, about a change of being. That's why Jesus says all this stuff comes out of the heart. And so if we are going to inherit eternal life, it's going to require much more than just new behavior. No matter how godly that behavior is, it's going to require that we become new people at the deepest level of who we are. That's why the Bible says anyone in, who is in Christ is a new creation. That's why the Bible describes becoming a Christian as new birth because we become new people with new capacities that no law can give us. And so how do we get it? Well, Jesus once said, don't think that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. I didn't come to abolish them. I came to fulfill them. We might think from this passage that, okay, Jesus is against Christian ethics. Jesus is against the law. How we behave doesn't matter. He didn't say that. He said, I haven't come to destroy it. I've come to fulfill it. Now, what does it mean to fulfill the law? Here's what I think it means. The fulfillment of the law is when you can get people to do what the law calls them to do, but you do not need the law to get them to do it. 
because it comes out of the heart. And Jesus says, I'm the only one who can fulfill this. I'm the only one who will perfectly love God with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength and love my neighbor as myself. But if you'll come to me and you'll follow me, I will change you and give you the ability to do the same, however imperfectly. Christianity is not a new set of ethical codes to live with an old life. It's a new life to live with new vitality, new energy, new capacity. And the only place you can get it is Jesus Christ. My time is totally gone. But let me finish with this illustration because it's just so good. Lanks mentioned the Chronicles of Narnia last week. There's a great story in the voyage of the John Treader that Lewis just captured this when he said, when he talked about Eustace. And Eustace was the brat of the group. His character was so bad. And he ends up becoming a dragon. Literally, he embodies his own character and becomes this dragon. And yet it humbles him. He realizes who he truly is. Ugly inside, now ugly outside. And it breaks him so much so that he wants to change. And then he meets Aslan. And Aslan says to him, follow me. And he tries as much as he can as he follows Aslan down to a well. And Aslan says, get in, but you have to remove your dragon skin before you get in. And he scratches and he scratches and he scratches. And it makes a little bit of effort, but it doesn't change him. By the time he gets to the well, he's exactly the same. He can't remove his dragon skin. And then Aslan says to him, you have to let me do it. And this happens. Lewis writes, it would be nice and fairly true to say that from that time, Eustace was a different boy. To be strictly accurate, he began to be a different boy. He still had relapses. There were still times where he was very tiresome. But of those, I shall not notice. The cure had begun. Our cure for the ability to love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and the ability to love people in a way that the world takes notice, can only begin when we allow Aslan, Jesus Christ, to do the work. Shall we pray? Father, we just uh, give ourselves to you. Thank you for this time. Thank you for this word. Thank you for this parable. Thank you for the opportunity that we have. Lord, it's hard to think that we can't do it. We're so driven by um, a culture that says you must do it, you <coughs> must achieve, you must merit it yourself. And yet we can't. And what a tragedy for this man to stand before Jesus Christ himself and be taught this lesson of his own inadequacy and yet still turn around and say, thanks, but I've got it. 
Lord, I pray that we would not be like that today. Help us to come to you and allow you, the great Aslan, to do the transformational work in our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen.